I was recently asked by a six-figure client to find him a go-to software for running the keyword and listing side of his Amazon business. As always, I simply recommended Helium 10. Helium 10 is the all-in-one software tool for entrepreneurs to help them start, build and grow a business on Amazon. With over a million users served and over 2 billion products tracked, they certainly know their business. One of the main reasons I use them and recommend them to my clients is that it allows you to manage your business seamlessly and in one place. Their artificial intelligence system is sophisticated enough to help you find your next market. It also helps you create a listing and manage sales all with less time and effort. Plus, you can trust the data to help you make important decisions. You also get access to in-depth training from industry experts. So whether you're just starting or several years in, Helium 10 is a must-have tool for the Amazon side of your business. You'll get 50% off your first month of Helium 10 Platinum when you go to helium10.com and use the code AMAZINGFBA when you check out. Once again, just go to helium10.com and use the code Amazing FBA for 50% off your first month. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven, and eight figure Amazon sellers. I should say Amazon private label sellers. And the word private label is going to be our trigger word for some debate today. So we're going to talk about why the private label model is broken with Anthony Lee. Anthony is the Amazon subject matter expert at Canopy Management. It's an excellent Amazon management agency. We've had friends there before on the show, Brian Johnson and Brian Burt amongst them. But I would call Anthony not just a thought leader, but a thought provoking lead. When I see his content on LinkedIn, it actually makes me think, which is remarkably different to pretty much everything out there. So delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So let's talk about this then let's plunge into the controversy the private label model is broken that's what you said to me when we, we were having a chat you know about what we're going to discuss in the show and largely i'd agree with you but why is what's your take on that why do you say such a controversial thing so i know there's a little bit of drama in that statement but the reason that i say that i think what led to that conversation was we're kind of talking about how private labels being taught right now how it's been taught for a little while, actually, but uh, particularly as the landscape has gotten a lot more competitive, you know, how much more difficult it is to do business as usual the way that it is being taught and has been taught. But basically, in a nutshell, what makes it broken, what makes this dramatic statement happen is as I have, it, it, from my perspective and from the perspective of many people that I've had the great pleasure of knowing over the course of the past seven years in this industry, what I've seen is that a lot of not just gurus, but actually like respectable individuals that are teaching, they always come at it from the perspective of this do the right research, this is the research, and find the right product and it'll be easy to be successful. And the truth of the matter is, when we're talking about products on Amazon, and this is the controversial part, this is the part that people might not agree with me on, you're talking about the preferences of the masses. And this to me is no different than trying to predict whether or not a stock will go up. Both are directly linked to the preferences of the masses. And it is virtually impossible to predict that. Research has actually been done on the stock end, right? Where people who have been doing it for decades, so much professional experience, still fare only 
a couple of percentage points better than an average person off the street. Basically, it's oftentimes a coin toss. And I know there's a lot of people that would say that is absolutely not true, but the data is there. And I think that picking a winning product on Amazon is no different. You cannot predict what the preferences will be of the masses. And as long as that is the model that's being taught, we're going to continue to see the vast majority of people fail over a period of time versus the small percentage of people that succeed. And the narrative that's pushed is always, oh, well, you didn't try hard enough. Uh, you should have just kept going with it. And it's like, well, man, they were set up for failure in this shrouded way that they didn't realize from the beginning. So that's, that's why we had that conversation. Yeah, I really like this. I, I think, by the way, we're going to get disappointment if you're looking for me to disagree with you here, because actually just over the last, I mean, I guess I've been in the space about seven years as well, actually, I sort of started learning about this and, and working on researching, you know, the famous Helium 10 or whatever it is, Viral Launch, I'm not partisan about, you know, I think I used Jungle Scout to start with. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is what I've seen myself in my own business in my clients' businesses, with my friends who sell on Amazon as well, that actually there's a mismatch between what's being taught, what happens, and then the interpretation of what happens. And I, I agree with you on that. This idea, I mean, I've just been rereading The Dip by Seth Godin, like so much of what he writes, just wise. It's a short book with a lot of depth of thought in it, like it often is with him. And one of the things is that this idea of persistence being the, the, the thing that beats everyone, particularly the American thing that if you believe enough that it will happen Brits are a bit more cynical anyway which isn't always good but I think there is something about this idea of belief and hustle overcoming everything which is just not actually it uh, doesn't <laughs> correspond to reality in any way so how do we deal with this then obviously I, I agree with you a lot of people who've been around for a while will have experienced some of these things others who haven't experienced as much failure will be kind of nervously praying it doesn't happen to them but how, what's a more rational response to this then how do we deal with this uncertainty of we don't know what the masses will want okay so selling on amazon despite the many many posts that i constantly see about how easy it is which just aggravates me to no end selling on amazon is a business like pretty much any other business there are going to be parts of it that you can master quickly and parts of it that are going to take time and then a whole bunch of it that you don't have any control over at all. Before I go into how to address it, I kind of want to talk about basically what the problem currently is. So what we're being sold is this bill of goods that if you follow this formula, you'll find a winning product. And as I just suggested, that's likely not always the case. So what's happening is people get lucky. There's, it's, it's so aggravating that people's egos just refuse to allow them to acknowledge how much luck and good fortune plays a role in success. But research has been done on this too. And there, there are several parts uh, of any success story that, you know, were, were laid to chance. And the reason people have this aversion to that is because it damages their ego. You're saying that it was just luck, that it wasn't my hard work. No. Your hard work is what got you good at marketing, what got you good at negotiating, but there, you're not going to be perfect at everything. Luck came to play when you managed to work out a decent supply chain when that wasn't your strength. Luck came to play when you managed your uh, cash flow when that isn't your strength. Like you can't be 100% at everything. Anyway, 
but I digress. What's really happening is people are getting lucky and then they can afford to make mistakes. And, you know, they're getting a hundred products at a time, 90 of which fail, but they can afford to take that hit. And they're teaching people, no, the key to success is doing the right research and finding a good product. And I think based on what I've seen and I have had access to a lot of very successful people in this industry, it's mitigating risk that is the key to their success, right? They're able to take the losers and cut them fast and ride the winners out. And that is consistently creating results. Ultimately, the average person, I've talked to a lot of people who manage tons of accounts that have uh, cooperated this, but you know, the average successful seller will have, you know, nine losers and then one that just goes to the moon and there's very, very, very like maybe one in a million people who just hold in touch and they just constantly fall, stumble upon good luck. And, and they're the ones that are going to tell you it's actually pretty easy. Just follow the system. And it's like, you know, let me put it to you this way. I don't know any eight figure sellers that have ever been able to bring somebody up and say, I coached this person to from zero to eight figures successfully and this person and this person, this is a totally repeatable process. So again, I digress. So how do you deal with that? How do you address the fact that it, you really can't predict the preferences of the masses on Amazon? That is a $65,000 so, question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really tough thing to answer with a direct answer. And the reason is because if there was an answer to that, then everybody would just do that. Yeah. Basically, you can you can mitigate the potential for loss by taking a number of different approaches. One might be just get as many products on the market as possible. I used to actually say he with the most SKUs wins. And I know a lot of people that are a testament to that. They'll have a thousand SKUs, you know, 25 of which make the bulk of their income. And if you do the math on it, actually, if you have a thousand SKUs that only do two sales each per day on average, like the numbers end up astronomical. That's one approach. The approach that I like to advocate is I tell people, you know, go in it for the long term and build a brand. And that this is the point of contention because there's plenty of people that are far more successful than me that talk about how, you know, you don't have to waste your time with that. You're just selling on Amazon. But there are two advantages to this. One, if you teach people from the beginning that they have to put in the, the forethought of building a brand, they're less likely to pick a commodity product. If you tell somebody, hey, the way to success in this game is to build a brand, they're less likely to go, okay, well, I think I'll sell a can opener, right? And then two, it sets them up for long-term success after Amazon. Because if you build something substantial, you allow yourself all of the, the different ways that you can stand out, all of the different ways that you cannot be just another product on Amazon. And while it might take some time to get the recognition for that, ultimately, you know, it's, I think, a clearer path to success. It requires more work and it might even have less of a payout. There's less risk involved with regard to like betting the whole farm on a, on a single product and a single bit of research that you learned from a single teacher, you know, I think, but it spreads out the risk and you could end up building something far more substantial in the future. So that's my take, my approach. Okay, interesting. Now, 
one of the, the the sets of stats and numbers you came up with is that you say the average successful seller will have nine losers and one that goes to the moon. That sounds exactly that the stats you'd expect from a competent, not just an average, but a competent venture capitalist, i.e. they expect nine investments to fail out of ten, and the tenth one has to not only pay for all of the other failures, but then that's where they make their profit as well. So it sounds remarkably similar numbers. I mean, do you think, therefore, that we really need to approach this like a venture capitalist would approach kind of investments on a smaller scale not investing in 10 businesses just 10 product lines but is that more or less an approach that you could do as well or is there is that not transferable no i i i think ultimately that's transferable across all business the idea is i mean we've heard the stats forever right the 80 20 rule you know 80 percent of businesses go go under after five years like these numbers keep popping up and so I think it's transferable across all domains. Essentially, you have to realize that one of the greatest skills you'll ever have, first, you just have to get over your ego and accept that chances are you are not one in a million. I mean, you might be. There are definitely people who are, but chances are the average listener is not one in a million and you're not going to have the Midas touch. So if you accept that, then the second thing you can do that's almost just as powerful is just learn how to mitigate your risk and learn how to how to lessen the damage from losses and go at it saying you know what this product next product that like you could have four losers in a row before you get to the and, and if you just go into it knowing okay well i have to budget for that and uh, and i have to prepare for that and the way that i tell people they should do that is running tests and this is actually the reason why i me and like some very large respected teachers don't agree on this I don't think you should bet the farm after some research. I think that you should always test. That is how you lessen the loss. You get 200 units of this product. And if all signs say, hey, this is not going to work out, then you lost the money on 200 units. You do that again. You do that again. Rather than, hey, I did all this research. I'm making a big bet. I mean, you're at a poker table at that point. I put all $10,000 that I had to my name in this one product. I hope it works out. I don't, I just, I, I, that seems too risky to me. If you just tested and then, Hey, I think I stumbled upon a winner and you know, yeah. the prevailing logic yeah. from the teachers is always, well, if you do that, you won't be fast enough to market. Your competitors are going to drive the price. And well, if you spend the time to build a brand, then you stand out above them. And it does, you know, at that point you still get a chance to win, but that's it's me. interesting. I mean, yeah, what you, you articulated there, I guess the tension between that kind of you spot an opportunity, you need to move fast. And there is definitely a logic in that. We've all seen that, that you find something in month three, it looks good in month six, you can sort of get in there and try and dominate the market in month nine, it starts to be, you know, invaded by the competition at a lower price. Having said that, though, I fundamentally agree with you. I, I know I can understand the logic behind the counter argument for what it's worth. Like, <laughs> little old me like it matters i mean i, I guess i like yourself i've, I've had the, the luxury of insight into some pretty serious businesses and, and i think that mitigating risk is the absolute key and, and risk is not a fun sexy thing that anyone wants to discuss but i think that the venture capitalists the guys even you know even though it's telly and it's just as constructed as 
you know, any kind of soap opera, you know, as friends or something. It's just kind of as, as constructed. But nevertheless, Dragon's Den, Shark Tank, the sorts of hard questions they ask are often about the risk mitigation, I feel. And the reason that they go for bigger equity positions or Mr. Wonderful, the richest guy in the Shark Tank, as far as I know, is always wants a percentage of people's sales in perpetuity. I'm like, that's super smart because that's the lowest risk investment possibility here. And he loves debt. And again, you get paid if a company goes to the wall the debtors get paid first right i mean the the creditors i should say so you know it strikes me that risk mitigation thing is what the smart money actually does and the people who advocate just get in there fast the ones who've been lucky and assume that that will apply to others and i i think you're right for what it's worth i mean and i hope that people disagree because it'd be healthy to have a debate about this so there's there seems to be almost a discussion of risk mitigation in this space and that blows my mind considering how much money we put it at the mercy of consumer whims. It's not a rationally driven business, right? We're not selling real estate to people on a commercial basis. We're selling fast-moving consumer goods based on a whim and photography and, and just as how they're feeling that day. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So how do we go about really mitigating risk in a professional way then, assuming that we both think that's the right thing to do? Sure. Well, for starters, I think you mentioned it when you were talking about, you know, successful people taking on debt. I feel like a small bit of kind of financial intelligence would definitely benefit somebody going into any business. Don't be so afraid of debt. I personally bootstrapped my business on credit cards when I started. And I know there's tons of people out there that would be like, never, ever tell people to put it on a credit card. Look, I don't want to tell somebody, you know, to completely destroy their credit. My point is, is like you said, if it goes under, the creditors get paid first. You know, I would rather have a mountain of credit debt, but my retirement fund to be okay, than bet my entire future. But hey, at least I still have a 700 credit score. Like that's me personally. I think that the important thing for somebody to do is make an informed decision on how they want to take that on. And then the next step is I really think that testing is important, not just not just research. That's what everybody always teaches. Like, just do your research. No, you should test the waters. You should run surveys. You should do like maybe put out some product concepts on PickFu. This stuff costs money, but it's worth the the couple thousand dollar investment you're going to make in testing. And then knowing that you made, you know, the best choice possible is going to be way worth it to me rather than you know, risking 20 grand and losing the whole, the whole bit, but you run the test. So you get sample orders, you put them on different marketplaces, not just Amazon, right? Cause technically your listings probably going to get buried under a million other listings at first. So, you know, put your test units out on walmart.com on eBay on Mercari and, you know, try to sell them on Facebook marketplace for crying out loud, whatever you can do just to see if people are going to be interested in it. And then if you start seeing, interest, then okay, people want this product. People want this product. And maybe the reason why that's a, a, a good strategy is maybe when you put it on Amazon, it doesn't, people on Amazon don't want it as much. But if you've proven the concept, then you know you have a product people want, then just sell that on other marketplaces. At very least, you make your money back and you go, okay, well, how do I find a product that's going to really kick off on Amazon. So you do that and then always stay lean, right? So here's where I've made mistakes. All of this I'm speaking from experience because I've made some very, very, very expensive mistakes. 
because I got in this business with zero business experience. So I can tell you like from newbie to, you know, the success and the failures that I've had average person, man, I was working at a restaurant. I was a copywriter at a, a web design firm. I didn't know anything about selling stuff online. So one mistake that people make is they don't even realize it. They're becoming emotionally attached to the success. When that happens, they make poor restocking decisions. I think that as long as you're utilizing FBA as your primary source for distribution, you need to stay lean. So what I did, my big mistake is I took a product that doing during Q4 one year went nuts. I mean, it was selling like three to $4,000 worth per day. I kept jacking up the price and it was like, it didn't matter. It just kept selling. It was nuts. And I thought, well, this product was hot. This product is hot and it has nothing to do with, I mean, Q4 is helping, but this is a good product. So I went from ordering 2000 units at a time to putting a bulk order, 10,000 units, my biggest order of this product all at once, 10,000 units. No sooner did that inventory get checked in that suddenly sales went down to like 10 units a day, almost overnight. That's how fast it can happen. And that is when I learned staying lean is important, especially if all of your distributions on one channel, right? If it makes more sense for you to buy by the carton or, you know, <clears throat> by the container in the future, hopefully that's only when you have multiple places that you're distributing, you can put it in a warehouse and then you can sell some here, some here, some here. But if Amazon is going to be your number one primary source, then always stay lean because you never know these trends can change overnight. And you don't want to get stuck with having to liquidate. Liquidating, I've done it like four times. Liquidating is not fun, especially yeah. because you look at the numbers. And you go, okay, well, I took a little bit of a loss here. That hurts. Yeah. So I think that's how you mitigate risk. I hear you on the liquidation thing. I, I literally got, got a few units left that I couldn't sell for some legal reasons, which is another whole <laughs> risk that people don't look into, some IP claims. But, you know, I've still got them hanging around in storage because some part of me is just not even wanted to get round to getting rid of them. And I was just going through my accounts with my accountant yesterday and I'm still spending, I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks a year on storage. It's not a big deal, but it's stupid. It's an example of the fact that it's horrible to deal with your problems and mistakes you made. So I hear you on all this. What I would say is this. I really, I'm so, I'm afraid I'm not going to be very controversial in terms of disagreeing with you because I, I agree with everything you're saying, really. I mean, I think... Here's the thing. You're either going to be overstocked or out of stock. I, I think it's impossible to be precise. It's it's the aim. It's what we should all sweat for. But come on, it's 2021. It crazy supply chain problems. It was 2020 last year, crazy demand side. Nobody in these sort of two years, I would say, is going to get it precisely bang on. The risk of running out of stock is you miss out on sales, and that hurts because you see the revenue numbers and you dream about them being yours. Well, for starters, revenue isn't yours, only the profit. And, and the other thing is, if you run out of stock, you run out of future sales, that hurts as an opportunity cost. If you run out of money, you end up going out of business and that is game over. So I would say in terms of risk mitigation, to your point, if you put risk mitigation above all else, going out of stock hurts less than running out of cash because you run out of stock, you can't sell, you run out of cash, it's game over. So I'm with you on this and it's, it is going to be a constant inner fight. Pretty much every entrepreneur I work with who's serious they're obsessing about how much stock they should buy and the cash flow and they should but to your point if you have to err on the side i think it's got to be the side of cash because everyone likes cash and only amazon consumers like your stock sometimes and then they suddenly don't as you say so 
I like this a lot. Now, one of the things you're suggesting as as a solution is obviously building a brand which is not going to protect you from individual product mistakes, but it's going to, I guess you're saying, it's building more value. I mean, in what way is a brand actually a defense, I guess, or, or a rational response in this? Because everyone talks about it, but but why, so, why does it really matter? In, in my opinion, the reason that building a brand is a defense against this is because, A, it by default sets you up to take measures that will help you to stand out, which is important on the Amazon platform. But B, notice that all of the issues that I'm bringing up are really just problems that Amazon or other mass marketplaces have, right? We're talking about selling in a mall. In a mall, you have to stand out. Trends come and go. There's just so much you don't have control over. But then you talk talk to successful Shopify sellers, right? Well, they sell to a niche. For them, it's like, well, this is easy. Like, I sell to tennis enthusiasts. I know exactly what they're going to like. The rules are a little different. So if you build a brand, you're essentially building uh, a solution or a catalog of solutions for a specific avatar. If your products don't take off on Amazon, you still have the capability. And obviously there's a lot of other skills you need to learn. You know, you, you might have to dive into uh, paid advertising, which I think that you should any, anybody in e-commerce, it doesn't matter if it's Amazon should know right off the bat. One of the best things you can do is educate yourself on how to run paid advertising. But outside of that, like you then have the opportunity to sell your products to directly to, you know, your avatar, right? I, I, Amazon is just a channel. Amazon is a crowded place. It has a lot of people in it. Your website probably doesn't have a lot of people, but you know, I'm thinking if you put in the effort to build a brand, you might be able to grow something faster and more substantial off Amazon. And that could end up being the channel that you sell all these products. I know plenty of people who have products that they sell on their website that they don't sell on Amazon and vice versa. It's because the audiences are different. Right. So if you build a brand, you have the ability to do that. Then you can take these products that maybe didn't take off on Amazon, but the niche really likes them. And once you've mastered how to get traffic to that website and target your niche specific, then they'll buy those. And then you can work on getting products that'll do better in this mass marketplace. And I just think it gives you more room to grow. Mm-hmm. That's my perspective. Interesting. So, and you put up a very good point, which is that you're very vulnerable to trends, whether it's just seasonality. Well, I say just seasonality. I mean, you became a victim of that just seasonality thing where in Q4, maybe you had, I know, 4x your usual sales, maybe in five compared to January, which is kind of horrendous normally, isn't it? If you've got a great December, you normally have a terrible January in my experience. But that's one trend. And then there's the whole fidget spinner type trend. And then there's a trend that's the more common regarding Amazon when, where, it looks hot. You order it from China. By the time you've got your, your unique kind of product design, it's about seven months later and the marketplace is quite crowded. And then after 12 months, it's kind of no profit left. So I, I hear you. All, anyone who's off for five minutes will hear you on this. So, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. The idea of getting away from those trends and more focus on a niche is important. Now, talking of brand building, then what, one of the notes I've got on here that we <laughs> agreed, I think, is that most marketing that people do in the product space, in particular Amazon, is pretty terrible. What's <laughs> interesting statement? Why did you say that? And, and does that relate to the brand building thing or is that a separate problem? The marketing is so narrow. I think it's 
maybe t- maybe it's terrible is 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 not the the best way to put it but the marketing is just so narrow right people are just so focused on you know how many rebates can i do to rank once i rank it's success you know from here to the moon i'm good and it's like this a isn't a long-term strategy especially with how often amazon changes terms of service and then b i mean it's 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 expensive to take that on and it's still a risk because you can't control Amazon's algorithm. Even I, like I probably know more about that doggone algorithm than anybody outside of people that work for Amazon. And even I can't control it. So, you know, things like that, it's just, it's not, it's not sound marketing. Sound marketing would be conveying to your ideal audience that your solution is viable. And I know that doesn't sound sexy at all, but again, talking about consumer psychology, right? It turns out that people don't buy the best product. And this is for logical reasons. If you ask somebody, why'd you buy that? Oh, because it was the best one that I found. You can't buy the best product because you don't have the bandwidth to test all of them. What people actually do is buy the product that they have the most confidence doesn't suck, literally. So your job, if you're marketing well, is to put out the message targeted to people in your niche that your product is viable. It's a good solution that they won't end up being disappointed with. And, you know, if you can pull that off, you're going to find, I mean, people are going to be buying the product in droves. You've hit a psychological trigger point that they don't even understand. Really, probably you don't even understand because the brain is wacky and hard to really grasp how it works. Just know that the more confidence you can instill in people that they're not going to make a horrible decision with your product, uh, the more you know likely people are going to make that decision. And then once they're in your ecosystem as a customer, it doesn't stop there. Almost everybody in Amazon is just like, sell the product. Amazon doesn't really give us a whole lot of opportunity to talk to them anyway. Just keep selling the product. It's all like one and done. And it's like, if you find ways to take measures to keep in contact with your customers, this is where you turn somebody that bought your product because they were confident and it wouldn't suck into a an advocate that says, no, actually, I am convinced that this is the best product on the market, even though I have no objective data to prove that I am going to shout it from the rooftops because I now believe it. And that's all part of good marketing. And this is the stuff that your average Amazon seller misses out. That is certainly the the, the foundations of great marketing sound like that, you know, you, you're talking a lot of common sense there. But one of the things you just put your finger on, and this is maybe let's get into this a little bit more. They're not exactly controversial. It's it's the experience we all have on Amazon. It gets harder and harder to send the messages. You you, I remember back in the day, 2015, I was phoning people up because Ryan Man- Daniel Moran said on the podcast he'd done it once. They were a little bit surprised, but you actually had the numbers. Now you can't even get the addresses, etc. So it's getting harder and harder to contact people. So how do we actually really? I can hear the the sound of one of the big sort of sellers that I know. My my ear going, yeah, but that's not real we actually mostly are selling on amazon if you're selling on amazon then it is a one and done kind of thing and you can't really build a brand on that because amazon's putting a brick wall between you and your consumers i mean how do we actually make this happen for real 
if we're primarily selling on Amazon, maybe you're doing 10% of your revenue on Shopify, maybe 5%, whatever. But how would you make this real? Okay, so you're absolutely right. Amazon puts a brick wall up there, makes it next to impossible for you to communicate with your buyers. So my solution to that has always been, if you're the one that brings the buyer to Amazon, then you have access to them before they become Amazon's customer. They become yours before they become Amazon's, even though they haven't transacted uh, monetarily with you yet. So this comes down to community building. But once again, easier to do if you have a brand. If you have a brand that is targeting uh, a market, this is a group of people that share either an interest or a pain point or a group of pain points and you provide a catalog of solutions for those people, you can build a community outside of any marketplace and this gives you access. One of the most successful sellers that I know did this exactly the way it should be. This guy, I watched him grow inside of a year from like 10 grand a month to literally almost a million. It was the craziest growth. It was more like a year and a half. It was the craziest growth I've ever seen. And this guy put so much effort and money into building out a Facebook group specifically for his users of his brand and his products. He incentivized the hell out of people just joining and engaging. And it paid off in a like immeasurable look at that growth right and and the reason is because like he did exactly what i'm just talking about he built a community and these are people that he could stay in contact with outside of any marketplace and you know then it was up to him to just drive them to whatever marketplace he wanted to sell so if you're selling primarily on amazon like yeah this isn't this is another skill set this might be another hire if you're already uh successful you know you might have to hire somebody to manage this kind of stuff but it's it's worth it because then you have the ability to have that communication channel and really turn people into brand advocates. Otherwise, you're literally just leaving it up to Amazon. And you know what? Amazon does not care a single iota about whether or not customers want to come back and buy from you. They don't care. They just want them to buy something from their marketplace. Amazon literally gives the exact same amount of care to whether or not the customer comes back and buys your product again or your direct competitors. And we know this because they put your competitors' ads on your listing. And they not just your, their ads, they put it on other shoppers also bought, like they put it in so many places. There's at least a hundred different opportunities for your customer to decide not to be your customer, even on your own property on the Amazon marketplace, because you don't own any of it. It's all Amazon's. Amazon doesn't care. You can give them as much control as you're willing to give them, or you can take control back by just building that community outside of it and then communicating with them as, as much as humanly possible, as much as, as it takes to convert them into you know, advocates. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening to the 10K Collective podcast, the play for six, seven, and eight-figure Amazon private label sellers. And today we had quite a controversial one about the whole private label model. And I don't think it's talked about enough, the downsides, the risks, but also once you really deal with those, the the upside that remains is real. And I think that um, if Anthony's 
sparked your thinking about this and above all how to risk mitigate how to how to minimize the downside and how to prepare for that possibility then he's helped you build a really much stronger business and i'm happy to be part of getting that message out there lots of things to reflect on here i don't think i'm going to recap very much of what anthony said really i think a lot of it comes down to risk mitigation frankly and and acknowledging risk and then seeing what it is and putting things in place including great testing and really solid brand building so you're not just dependent on amazon for the future of your business as well as especially as we get into 2021 and beyond so thanks so much for listening. I hope you found it helpful and thought-provoking. It's always good to reflect on what business you're actually in. I find that people don't do that enough and the result is actually not an abstract problem but a real concrete everyday problem. So if you really think this stuff through, I think you're already going to be a big competitive advantage for you and your business. As ever, if you've enjoyed today's show, please don't forget to subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd love your best and highest rating. Whatever, you can give us one, two, three, four or five stars. You don't even need to write a review. Just a rating will take 30 seconds on your iPhone or other Apple products. And uh, if you aren't on Apple Podcasts, don't worry about it. You can't at the moment, as far as I know, on Google or Spotify or the other platforms, give us a rating. So we'll accept your subscription very gratefully instead. Thanks very much for listening. Stay tuned for more reality and uh, hopefully helpful reality and insights from the front line of Amazon private label selling. Thanks for listening to the 10k collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.